0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, please be seated. Miss Rhoda Harding is a young woman who plans to celebrate Christmas Day all by herself. A character in a short story by Stella Gibbons. Rhoda finds just the right little cottage to take and begins to gather together everything she needs for her perfect Christmas alone. A small chicken all to herself and a very, very small tree. She puts her tree in a pot, she fastens on a few tiny candles and ornaments, and she lights the candles to make sure it looks just right. After admiring the tree for a little while, she carefully blows out the candles and goes to bed. The next day is Christmas, and this is 1940 in Buckinghamshire, England. It snows, and everything is beautiful, like it is when one remembers 1940 in Buckinghamshire. (laughs) On Christmas morning, Rhoda's morning is interrupted. There's a knock at the door. She opens it, and she's surprised to find there standing three little children. And the leader of the three begins a long-involved story. It's a story of a wicked stepmother. And this child pleads with Rhoda on behalf of her siblings, please take them in, let them have shelter. Rhoda takes the children in and proceeds to feed them and share her Christmas chicken with them. Well, later on, after a little while through the meal, there's another knock at the door. It turns out to be the father looking for his very precocious children. When the children realize that they've been caught in a completely fabricated story, Judy, the little girl who is clearly their leader, blurts out, Don't tell. I made it up. I made it all up. Everything about the wicked stepmother and the whole thing. Rhoda looks at her and wonders, well, why would you do such a thing? And the little girl says, We looked in your window last night and we saw your little tree. We loved that little tree. We've never had a little tree at home. Everything's so big, it's horrid. Children are drawn to what's small, what's like them. Most children today probably don't use the word horrid, but I think it would be pretty easy to find children who might pass by a large, loud, impressive Christmas tree in favor of a smaller one, child-sized. There might be children, and maybe even a few adults, who feel lost in a giant house with lots of people and might well understand seeking out a small cottage to get away for Christmas Day. And now, as in every age, what is loud and grand and dramatic every once in a while gives way to what is quiet and small and insignificant. Whenever that happens, wherever that happens, I think we should pay attention. We should pay attention because chances are that that's the sort of place where we might just meet God. God, after all, moves in a downward, lesser, quieter way. God so very often is found in what is small. If we think of God's self-revelation in Scripture, we can see places again and again and again where God shows a preferential option for the small. The men and women God raises up as leaders are almost never high and mighty. David, who becomes king, is the least likely in terms of toughness and world readiness. Rahab the harlot, with God's help, becomes a heroine. The prophets are mostly oddballs and misfits and outsiders to the people they're called to serve. Even God's chosen community is often weak and vulnerable. Our first scripture reading tonight comes from that part of Isaiah in which the people of God are in trouble. Assyria, the great power to the north, is a threat not to be toyed with. And that's what Isaiah tells them. But Isaiah also offers hope. He sees hope in a descendant to the throne of David. A child has been born for us, Isaiah says. Biblical scholars argue over who exactly Isaiah might have thought this child would be, whether it was someone closer to his own day, or like Christians usually believe, a Messiah in the future. But what is clear is that Isaiah's words have to do with God reaching out, God reaching down, God reaching in, God reaching around, There's no good preposition for it, but God reaching toward us, toward us. God reaching for the small, for the faithful, for the just, who are willing to listen and try to follow God. In that Isaiah's words move quickly from describing a child who is to come to describing a mighty Savior in all too human, political, and cultural terms, it shows us a paradox of our faith. What is great, enormous, and indescribably big news often begins in a small, quiet, almost secret way. The story of God's coming, of a child who's born for us, happens off stage to most of the major events of its time. Joseph and Mary are not married. They don't travel with their family. They journey to register for the census and have to find space to sleep in a barn. Though St. Luke imagines choirs of angels directing the traffic for shepherds and providing a heavenly chorus, even the angels themselves describe the birth in pretty simple terms. They say to look for a baby wrapped in rags, lying in a feeding trough. (laughs) The light of a star is needed to supplement the faint light of a poor person's lantern. Later, the visiting magi will bring incense, but it's a good thing, because the incense probably comes just in time to cover up the smell of the animals and the dung, the smells of sweat and stink and poverty, those smells into which Jesus was born. Throughout the human life of Jesus, people are surprised by the everyday ordinary qualities that he has. He's from Galilee. No one's from Galilee. His parents are locals. Everybody knows them. He's uneducated. He hangs out with common people, with rough people, with sinful people. From the standpoint of the sophisticated and cultured Romans, Jesus is just one of the little people, one of the very little people to be ignored, ignored completely until he causes problems and then he's simply to be disposed of. Of course, for us to see God in small things runs counterculture and always has. It meets resistance. I always think of the great 1980s Peter Gabriel's song, that talked about big things. It so perfectly summed up what many of us have always heard of the American dream, to to use big words to get to a big, big city, to be a big noise among the big boys, to pray to a big God and to kneel in a big church. Some might cynically argue that life always favors the big. You've got to be big to get along in this world. The strong over the weak, the large over the small. Evolution shows, but does it? Evolution shows that those who are too large do not survive. Whether they be dinosaurs or empires or multinational corporations, or people who grow beyond their means eventually all turns to weakness and decay. Better to be small, better to be vulnerable, better to be weak when it can promote reliance on others. Our building can feel large, but we're not a big church We don't have a big budget, and most of our members don't have very big wallets. But here we are. We do what we can. We have a small shelter that helps a small number of people most of the days of the week. We offer a relatively modest meal on Tuesday afternoons for anyone who wants to come, especially seniors on Saturday afternoons for anyone who wants to come. It's big enough, but it's not nearly vast enough to serve the need. We conduct beautiful worship services. We make heavenly music. We support one another in shortcomings. We do it all with shoestrings and paper clips and duct tape and anything else we can find, all wrapped up in prayer, all given over to the Holy Spirit. Being small means being faithful. It means relying on God. Here and there in the history of faith, especially the Christian faith, small verses emerge, and they can give us hope. One place where a small voice emerged and still lingers with many of us is near the end of the 14th century, The church in England was busy being big in most of the ways it could imagine. It was all intertwined with the power of royals and nobles. But in a tiny room attached to a small, insignificant church in Norwich, a woman named Julian began to reflect a little bit on her small, limited experience with God. God came in a series of visions to Julian, often called Julian of Norwich. Then she prayed about those visions, and she wrote them down. This was quiet work, she did with her cat and a few people who passed by her window. It was out-of-the-way work. It was ignored work for many, many years until almost 500 years later, But in one vision in particular, Julian imagines that God places something in her hand, something tiny. She writes, The Lord showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, and it was as round as a ball. I was amazed that it could last, for I thought that because of its littleness, it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts And always will because God loves it. And thus everything has being through the love of God. In this little thing I saw that God made it, that God loves it, and that God preserves it. God is the creator and the protector and the lover. Julian sees God in small things. And so can we. God comes into the world at Christmas in a tiny way, beautifully symbolized in our tiny creche. God becomes incarnate in a little baby. God takes on flesh in all of its weakness and smallness. The incarnation continues to be felt and seen and heard in small things a word here, a look there a hand held, a wrong forgiven, an honest word said out loud, a just word shared. Especially on Christmas. May the light of a single star illumine us, may the smile of a child reach us, and may we know the touch of God, as small as a baby's finger held out for us to enclose our hand around, for us to receive, for us to cradle, for us to embrace. Thanks be to God for being so small. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.